welcome back to another episode of the Unfounded Podcast listeners. My name is Chris Turner. Uh, I hope this podcast reaches you well. I hope you're staying safe out there in coronavirus pandemic world, pandemic world, uh, <laughs> uh, whatever it's called or whatever we're referring to it as, the new world, right? The new normal. Uh, welcome back. Uh, I know it's been about a, like seven days or so since I got my last episode out there, but um, I've had, like I said before, some technical difficulties with the podcasting publishing platforms. I had to switch some of those over, and then I had some issues with Apple Podcasts and Spotify Podcasts not publishing properly and getting those out there. So I did do a, a Facebook post for many of you if you follow me on Facebook, uh, kind of updating you on that process. Everything should be good to go now, and there actually should be more um, you know, podcast platforms to access the podcast on now. Um, part of the reason why I switched the publishing platform is it gave me access to auto-publish to a variety of different sources, so places like Breaker and ones that I didn't have before, right? So um, <clears throat> I might have had Breaker, but there's a couple on there like Radio Public and things like that that I hadn't used before, uh, so just kind of an easier way for you to access the content, right? Um, but that is all out there now for you. You will see a new webpage. If you do click on the links in my Facebook page, it'll bring you to a new webpage because it is being hosted by a different platform now. Um, it's called, called Simplecast, but it is a platform I've used before uh, and one that I'm going to stick with for a substantial amount of time. I'm kind of tired of switching around. I've done like four or five different podcast platforms in the last six months between this podcast and my last one, and I think I've gotten a good kind of variety or understanding of what's out there. So I don't think I need to switch anymore. And Simplecast provides a good platform that tends to get everything out there to you very quickly, which is really important to me. So uh, anyway, all that out of the way, uh, I hope you're doing well. I hope you're staying healthy out there. And I hope that you're kind of looking forward to all this craziness getting behind us, you know. Um, Now, whether the craziness is going to be put behind us quickly is a question that we can maybe talk about a little bit more today, but um, I do think that we are headed towards some uh, form of... of, of, restriction lift you know it sounds like at least and that'll be that's that's welcome you know it's been it's been a weird 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 couple months just a very abnormal couple months uh but in addition uh, in addition to that excuse me um i have been doing some research reading up a little bit more doing a little listening in audio form and stuff like that audiobook form of rupert sheldrake uh the author of the morphic resonance theory that i talked about last week and i do want to talk about that more in depth because i found a little bit more information i have a better understanding of what it is and i do have a little a couple articles here that do a better job of describing what it is to you so we can kind of you know all be on the same page and then talk about this theory in a little more depth or at least maybe play with it a little more moving forward because i think it does bring a lot of insight a lot of um It brings some legitimacy to some ideas that I've been playing with for a while. It's part of the reason why finding Rupert's ideas, uh, this this morphic resonance theory, for me has been a little profound, a little shocking, because um, I don't know if you ever experienced something like this, but having an idea and then finding somebody that describes the idea with better clarity and resolution than you were able to initially, um, that's kind of what's happening with me right now in morphic resonance, right? Uh, And so I'm going to try to take you on the journey as I uncover or learn more about this theory and maybe what it holds for the future and how we can connect that uh, to the spiritual side of things, right? So um, anyway, without further ado, let's go ahead and roll right into it. So uh, like I said, I did engage a little bit more after last week's episode, um, one of last week's, last week's episodes, I think it's the last one, uh, on morphic resonance. You know, I did, uh, there's a couple, there's a lot of good resources out here if the information I provide to you today isn't in enough the depth to kind of understand because these are kind of out there ideas right they're hard to they're not tangible (laughs) you know like 
they're hard to grab onto. So if there is anything like that that, that you find hard time um, conceptualizing, uh, definitely just type in Morphic Resonance uh, in YouTube or anything like that, and you'll see a ton. There's a TED there's a TED talk that he's done on it that I think is probably one of the better resources, and I can provide a link for that uh, in in the description as well. Um, it's actually one of those like TEDx talks where it's been it's like one of those deleted TED talks that people aren't supposed to watch or something like that. <laughs> Because Rupert's pretty, I mean, Sheldrake is a pretty controversial figure in the scientific world, you know. What he's doing here, what these ideas, these ideas are playing with is is kind of undermining most of the scientific assumptions that we've been holding as founded for the last 100, 150 years, which is the whole purpose of this podcast, right? Unfounded is finding things that are not as solid as we once thought they were. The entirety of scientific thought might be that. And, and that's what's kind of shocking about Sheldrake's theory at a high level. Right. Anyway, let's dive a little bit in. So I found this really interesting article uh, from Scientific American um, that has uh, the, the, the interviewer here. Let's go ahead and see who it was. I'm sorry. Uh, it's John Horgan. Uh, again, I'll give you the link to this in the description. But he interviewed Rupert Sheldrake, I believe it was in 2014. Yeah, 2014. Uh, and this he had some some interesting questions I think most of us would probably ask if we had the opportunity to interview Rupert. And I'd like to go through them with you and kind of. Uh, read off the responses he had and it does a lot of goes a long way to describing or or, uh, putting the pieces together in terms of what this is what this idea is so uh let's let's go on so horgan this is the question i admit that i'm still not sure what morphic resonance is can you give me a brief description to sheldrake morphic resonance is the influence of previous structures of activity on subsequent similar structures of activity organized by morphic fields it enables memories Excuse me. It enables memories to pass across both space and time from the past. The greater the similarity, the greater the influence of morphic resonance. What this means is that all self-organizing systems, such as molecules, crystals, cells, plants, animals, and animal societies, have a collective memory on which each individual draws and to which it contributes. In its most general sense, this hypothesis implies that the so-called laws of nature are more like habits. Now, that last sentence, in this most general sense, this hypothesis implies that the so-called laws of nature are more like habits. Chew on that for a second, because this is the idea, this is the distilled idea that I think we really need to hold on to, because this is the unfounded principle within it, right? There's this assumption, and this kind of goes to the idea of of, of why I don't trust experts. There's been a lot of examples recently of why you shouldn't. (laughs) You know what I mean? Um, But uh, experts have this, uh, people that will refer to themselves as experts want to figure everything out. There's this ego problem built within the idea of expert. And because of that, people try to solve things. They want to find concrete examples of themselves being right or their worldview, their perspective being correct and so what they'll do is they'll look for laws look for fixed things right uh so that they can make the theory or the uh, the uh the whatever they're doing more solid right so it's like uh um if you're trying to find i don't know what's uh, let's see. Like one of the one of the examples Sheldrake spring, brings up in the TEDx talk is is like the constants. There's a lot of laws that we consider con- or constants in in uh, physics, right? Like gravitational constant. Uh, and one of one of the, like, or the speed of light, for instance, is, is considered a constant. Well, one of the things, and this is what I found this fascinating. One of the things that Sheldrake 
um, decided to do was to go back and look because there's records of those constants. You know, there used to be these, there's a manual, these physics manuals that get updated at certain intervals uh, that have all these constants kind of written down. The interesting thing is, is these go back, you know, 100, 150 years. You know, you can find these old, old manuals, Uh, but most people don't keep them. Right. Most people throw them away because as soon as you get the new book, why would you need the old one, right? It's it's less <laughs> up to date. Well, because of this, you know, Rupert had this idea. Sheldrick had this idea. He's like, well, hey, if 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 we're considering these things constant, fixed, and changeable, why do we have to reissue or update them, right? Why do you have to have new updates for the constants in physics? <laughs> and and um, he ended up not getting a good answer for that. So he went back and found a bunch of these older books, these older kind of, uh, uh, they're kind of like, I forget. I, I know you've seen them. If you ever went, if you were in college and you, you were, you took a physics class, they give you these books that give you all the constants, right? Um, <clears throat> he went and found those and looked back. And what he discovered was that those constants change continuously, obviously as they update them. Now this brought up another question is like, okay, well, if the constants change, why are they changing? Are like, are like, you know, why, why would something change? Because it shouldn't, if it's a law, it's fixed. It shouldn't change. Right. So that would mean that our, our measuring capability is wrong or is out of date or not correct, not accurate enough or whatever. Right. So he, he tried to figure out how do you measure these things? Well, um, what he ended up finding out is the average for like gravitational constant or the speed of light is not tested in one location. It's not like there's one area in the world where they test the speed of light and then they that's what it is. It's more, there's a lot of different locations across the world that have the ability to test things like speed of light because they have the infrastructure to do so. Uh, and because of that, they each, uh, you know, when we're trying to produce a new constant book or whatever, have an updated version of the book, um, all of it, it'll, they'll compile all of the different versions of the speed of light from each of these different locations that tested it and then develop like essentially an average. And that's what goes into the book. So these constants aren't it's not like you can go in Switzerland, try to find the speed of light, you know, using, uh, you know, a collider of some sort, and then, you know, go to Australia and try to find the speed of light and, and find the exact same number. You know, now there's a lot of reasons that could be. It could be because there's so much variability in the systems that are producing those measurements, right? And that's one of the problems with these numbers is there's, you're talking about numbers that are either so big or so small that even the smallest variation in the testing, you know, process can produce massive differences. Partially why they take it from different locations, you know, different places test all of these constants than if it's averaged out. Usually the outliers, you know, the outliers will be averaged out and you'll get somewhat somewhat close to what the real figure should be. The problem is is when you refer to something that is found in that pro- that way by averaging as a constant or a law, you're lying. <laughs> Because it's not. It's not constant. <laughs> constant, fixed, unchanging. Right? I what's what's so profound what's what for me the reason why this is so profound is because this is the way that science presents itself, period. As if it's the tangible thing, the thing that doesn't change, the thing that can find out or glean all the information in the world that we couldn't before because it's got the tools to do so, right? It's got it's got the methodology. It's got the scientific method. You know, just rinse, repeat, and you're going to find more information. We've talked about that before too, right? Well, apparently that's not true. If what Sheldrake is, is, has discovered is, 
is correct and it sounds correct he'd have no reason to lie <laughs> you know what i mean like what what would be the point of trying to tear down the entire scientific community because you're going to ostracize yourself as he did right when he so anyway i digress right <laughs> a lot to talk about but um so we don't these constants don't exist basically the gravitational constant isn't the speed of light is not a constant it's changing or at least if it is, we do not have the ability to tell what the constant value is. And so when we, you know, let's say let's say you're trying to find, you know, um, use any formula for any formula for anything. If you're plugging in a number as a constant that isn't, your entire formula is wrong. Whatever answer you come to is not going to be correct. But you're going to present it as if it is, which is exactly what happens. I mean, think about how many things we consider founded, solid, that could be based on calculations that use constants like this. You start to see how this whole world may be constructed of lies. (laughs) You know what I mean? The whole world may be built on a, a foundation of twigs toothpicks it's all lies you don't have to go very far to figure out why we would create those lies ego all it takes is for the wrong experience within a religious religious institution you know let's say uh take somebody that experienced any of the negative consequences of Catholicism throughout the last thousand years. <laughs> it's easy to find, you know, examples of it, right? Somebody that lived through the Inquisition, or maybe somebody that lived under the, you know, more tyrannical um, rule of the Catholic faith, the Roman Catholic faith, when it was more tyrannical. You you'd see how you know you, this tribalism that's built inside of the human being, you know, can be leveraged in really negative ways, um, almost as a, you know a I think for lack of a better way of describing it, science is on a, has a, is a, there's a holy war going on, except it's between science and religion itself. It's an existential war, and the reason <laughs> that you see um, radical ideas coming out of the religious institutions uh, throughout the world, and also exceedingly more radical ideas and theories being presented as if they aren't radical in science... Uh, because they're trying to win. Just like in um, politics, the Republicans are trying to beat the Democrats, and the Democrats are trying to beat the Republicans. It's a tribal problem. The problem is we've been playing this for 150, 200 years, and we don't realize we're playing this game. We've presented one side of the, of that equation as if it's something that um, is more solid than the other, which is not true, apparently. <laughs> Is, is a lie, completely and utterly a lie. But it's also what gives science the basis for undermining religious thought and philosophy. It's what's given them the, the, the ability to, to pry people's view away from the religious spiritual side, to present scientific thought and theory as the only reasonable way, the, the, materialist, the materialist view, the mechanistic view of the world as the only way of viewing the world. It's a lie, and it's an evil fucking one at that, if this is true. Excuse my French. 
That is an evil thing going on there. This is why I don't trust experts. Because if you call yourself an expert, it assumes that you've gleaned something that I haven't. Because my assumption is that there is nothing fixed in the universe, right? My assumption is that everything is kind of malleable and morphable. This is also what Rupert Sheldrake is postulating, right? This is what he's suggesting. If you come to me and say, no, 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 I figured it out. No, 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 there's fixed things. You can find, you can know more, you can know the universe, in a deeper way than 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 the way you've figured it out, right? This is this is what this is the the audacity built into the scientific idea, period, the scientific method, the scientific community is this lie that my theory of things is more solid than yours. My theory of things is provable. Well, your scientific method goes out the window, buddy, if your constants aren't that. You know, time as an illusion starts to make a lot more sense if there is no constants. If gravity isn't a constant. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Sorry, hold on one second. My dog is being a little crazy right now. She's, she likes to go and start licking herself, and it's the most annoying sound in the world when I have a mic going. <laughs> Sorry, I can't think when I have that in the background. I've also had a lot of distractions the last couple of weeks. This is, I have to like stop every once in a while because I need to get these ideas out, but I also can't have a lot of distractions. And it's, there's a, anyway, it's a process. Let's get back to the topic. Um, <clears throat> I'm angry because I feel like there's been so many people throughout my educational career that have lied to me. The problem is, is I don't think it's intentional. It's such a deeply rooted problem that there's so many people within it that believe that there is a founded way of looking at the world. It is the scientific viewpoint, the materialist viewpoint, the mechanistic way of viewing the world. And if you only accept those views, then you can have a more solid foundation to stand on. You can view the world as the real thing, not the fake plaything that religion presents it as, right? This is, this is what a lot of experts have been telling you. As you've grown up, this is the brainwashing that is, exists within our educational system, not just in the United States, but everywhere. It tells you that science can glean all information. It tells you that there's one way of viewing the world that is more foundational, that is more fixed, is more concrete. It's not. There's no perspective or no way of viewing the world that is more concrete than the other. There's varied perspectives, different perspectives, different ways of viewing the world. That is the way the world is structured. Not in a hierarchy, not as one better than the other, even though, and the reason, and the reason you can see there's this ego within the scientific community that is running rampant. The reason it's running rampant is because religious institutions are the way you control that ego thing. The purpose, I think, of religion itself is to control the ego within the human being because the ego is the survival instinct unfettered inside the human being. The ego is the survival instinct escaping in a modern world. That is what the ego is, I think. And the reason that we need to... Let me crystallize because this idea is coming to me right now. There's a... Sorry, give me one second.
I got a little, I got a little worked up there. I think the ego is what we call the modern, the, the, the primitive, the primordial survival instinct inside the human being. It's what we call it. It's how we describe it in the modern world. We call it the ego. But it's the thing that tells you you're not enough. It's the thing that tells you to move. It's the thing that tells you you need to compete with everybody else. It's the thing that tells you you need, to, you know what I mean? It's a, it's the thing that you tells you need to find fixed answers. Why does it tell you that? Because there's safety in, in stability. And that's partially what this, this the materialists have preyed on for the last 150 years is this fear that's naturally built inside of people, the survival instinct. The problem is it's also the ego. And the way you control the ego is, is by playing with ideas that are bigger than you, religious ideas, spiritual ideas. If you delete those from the world or the perspective, what you have is an ego, a runaway train ego problem. Where you're insufficient to solve the problem, but you believe that you're the only thing that can. So you go round and round and round and round and round and round and round until you, you, you create either systems that are so miserable that people can't survive within them, period, or you create unsustainable systems because the assumptions, this you know, the fixed constants that you've designed all of your equations and algorithms on aren't that. And so everything that comes after that is wrong. <laughs> it's I think it's partially why when I worked at Amazon, these algorithms and all these other things, they didn't work. You know what I mean? They didn't work. The predictive value was like zero. And I've, I've talked about this before. And But yet it, it was the craziest thing. It was insanity defined in front of me to watch people go in every day, take the same equations, the same method of doing something, rerun the data, take the data and try to go and apply it in the exact same way over and over again with zero results, no results, no performance improvement. And the crazy thing is I've, I've watched people present it as if it is. So it's, it's part of the reason why the scientific method, you know, has to be retestable. You know, one of the things in, inside of it is like it built inside the idea is you have to retest things. You have to be able to recreate the methodology, right? The, the way that you, the way that you created that result, you have to be able to repeat it. it has to be repeatable, right? Well, what I've found when I found inside of Amazon is what's going on in a lot of those organizations, a lot of those fulfillment centers is there's one method, this method, the, the, the more scientific, you know, foundation founded way of viewing things that relies on a materialist mechanistic way of viewing the world also relies on algorithms and data sets to predict now if you work in a building that has you know almost an indescribable amount of intricacies within it right like the system is so complicated in those buildings it's hard to describe right but and you're given a tool. It's like, this is how you go about running this building, right? It's like, it, there's one way to do it. And this is, it's, 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 it's plug the numbers in, get the, get the output and go and, and interpret the output and, and, and go try to fix the problem, right? It's, it's kind of a backwards way of doing things. It's like, get out some information, try to interpret what the thing is telling you, even though you don't really speak the language, you're just trying to guess, but you're like, okay, I get this number. Why is that number there? Well, it must be because this person, you know, took an extra break here. Or this person did this, that, or what the other, the other, right? You see how it doesn't give you any more information. It just makes you feel more comfortable in guessing. That's all it does. <laughs> you know what I mean? It, it doesn't really inform you the way you think it does. Maybe it points in, in one direction, but what I found is a lot of times, even if whatever that data set, you know, let's say... 
let's say the data set produces a certain number, then it's your it's your job to glean why that number is either higher or lower, or whatever it is, right? Well, let's say you div- you come up with an idea for fixing that number and you go apply it. How are you ever going to know if your fix fixed it? Because let's say let's say we plug the number back in. Let's say we, we run the data again the next day and you've applied the fix. And let's say uh, it goes up, you know, or whatever it is. It gets better. Let's say it gets better. Well, yeah, you could say that that was because I applied that fix. You could also say that the constant changed. <laughs> you know what I mean? You could say it was completely random too and and both of those are equally valid assumptions but there's this there's this like idea built in that like the the way of the mechanistic way of viewing the world is is the only way to view it i think it's completely and utterly wrong and i think this is what sheldrick is getting at so i'm going to leave that there and continue on talk uh, reading a little bit more from this okay sorry if i got on kind of a confusing tangent there for a second <laughs> i'm going to try to get all the ideas out i can right now because this I've been trying to, I've been chewing on this, like I said, for a week, and it's hard to get out everything that's coming to me as I'm reading these ideas. Anyway, so let's move on. So Horgan, this is the interviewer again. He asked him another question. Did the idea of morphic resonance come to you in an epiphany or was it a gradual process? Sheldrake, the idea of morphic resonance came to me when I was doing research at Cambridge on the development of plants. I was interested in the concept of morphogenic, morphogenetic, or form-shaping fields, but realized they could not be inherited through genes. They had to be inherited in some other way. The idea of morphic resonance came as a sudden insight. This happened in 1973, but it was a radical idea, and I spent years thinking about it before I published published it in my first book, A New Science of Life, in 1981. Okay, so <clears throat> this is really interesting. This is one of the things, I, like I said, I highly recommend you watching the TED Talk because he goes into more depth in describing what this, this is. But the idea being, if you've ever watched, it goes back to the idea of the ants, right? You watched an ant colony. Or let's say you watched a flock of birds. It's a really good one, good example he uses. Um, watch a flock of birds or a school of fish. And what you'll notice is they switch direction instantaneously, but they hold their form. It's like the smaller part, it's, it's this idea of like, similar to like the idea of the Leviathan, I think, in some ways, but like it, it, Hobbes is Leviathan, but like it's this, uh, it's like each individual is its own central unit for moving and motivating things in the world. But when it's combined with another unit of the same makeup, of the same structure, there's this field of information that's communicated between those two structures. Now, the the method of this communication is what we don't have a, a very good description of. Sheldrake has not found, and this is what I was curious about, any proof of the morphic field. So it's not like he can say, hey, I found a piece of the morphic field. Here it is. You know what I mean? This is completely ideas, right? But the idea of it is as valid as the idea that is built into a lot of the assumptions within the scientific viewpoint. The constants, for instance. <laughs> you know what I mean? So, the, but this idea, when you, you watch these, these, these flock of birds and they change direction instantaneously, but they hold their shape, their form. Same thing with fish, ants, all of these. How are they communicating that? Because there's a l- very, very low latency communication going on there, right? 
in, almost it's instantaneous apparently like when you watch it it everything suggests to you that the way that those things are communicating is instantaneously as if they're wired together but they aren't now that assumption right there suggests that there's something deeper going on there right if there is information obviously being communicated because they have to be able to communicate to be able to maintain their form shape and direction right if they're doing that then how is it happening now, modern science, because it doesn't apparently view or fit into the mechanistic way of viewing the world, passes that off. We haven't solved that. We don't know how, how, how they communicate, how flocks of birds communicate, or ants communicate, or fish communicate, schools of fish. We have no idea how that works. What do we do? We just suggest, oh, it's probably something genetic. You know what I mean? It's not, not important. <laughs> because it doesn't fit into our viewpoint, right? No. Extremely important. Maybe what you're witnessing in the sky there is something very fundamental, a fundamental assumption that we missed, all of us missed, in this building up of the modern world, the mechanistic world, the materialist world that we now live in. It's not true. And because it's not true, I think it's, be it's becoming, that is becoming more apparent. The longer we, we hold these assumptions as founded, they're not. They don't, they're not stable. They, don't, they don't, can't support anything. Sheldrake suggests that the way that that communication, that communication is happening is through these morphic fields. That there's some... Something happening between two forms that share a similar structure. Be that a tree, or an ant, or a bird, or a fish, right? And that partially where this idea comes from is when he was studying the genetics of uh, like human growth or growth of any animal right um, there's this you know there's these tests they can do where they'll measure your bone structure and suggest with a high amount of accuracy how tall you're going to be right well what's interesting is if you look at the uh, a developing you know an embryo of a developing you know any mammal let's just say What you'll find is that there's certain genes, you know, we, we've mapped the genome of the, we've mapped the human genome. And what Rupert found was that even though we've mapped the genome, it's, we've mapped the genome, but we found out it's a lot less complicated than we thought it was. So there's far less genes in the human genome than, than we assumed there was. It, one of the examples he uses is there's more, there's more genes in, in, in like a simple animal. I forget what it is. It was like a, I don't want to misquote. It was something you have to watch Ted talk, but it's like, there's more, there's more genes in this like simple life form than there is in the human being. So what that suggests is that genes are not what defines complexity, <laughs> right? In the system, the more, more genes does not equal more complexity, right? And, but that's also an assumption. We've assumed that as, as you get more complicated, you know, biological structures, biological entities, the, the genes that produce those, which is what we've attached to that form is the genes. We say the genes define how you're formed. Well, that assumption is something that he, he prods as well. No, Sheldrake's idea is that what forms your hand as opposed to what forms your foot is these morphic fields. That there's nothing in genes that tells you that that's a, that's a foot gene and that's a hand gene. These are assumptions that us laymans that don't engage with the scientific, you know, material every day didn't even realize was a gap or a problem. But 
in genetics, there is no gene that says this is how long your arm is going to be. And this is how long your finger is going to be. We thought there would be. But we mapped the genome and found out that there isn't. That the, ge- the genes actually, apparently, play far less of a role in defining the shape of your body than we thought. It's like there's a blueprint, this is the way he describes it, that is exists separate from the biological infrastructure that guides how these things are formed. How your hands are formed. The length of your limbs. And that there's this, inf- this obviously this information exists and it exists in a different realm than the realm that we've been engaging in. It doesn't exist in the genes. It doesn't exist in the you know, molecular. It's somewhere else. So where is it? In this morphic field. This is where the idea of the morphic field. In this, this realm where information exists and is passed, but the infrastructure is not apparent for the passing of information. All right. Let's move on. Horgan, what is the single most powerful piece of evidence for morphic resonance? Sheldrake. There is a lot of circumstantial evidence for morphic resonance. The most striking experiment involved a long series of tests on rat learning that started in Harvard in the 1920s and continued over several decades. Rats learned to escape from a water maze and subsequent generations learned faster and faster. At the time, this looked like an example of Lamarckian inheritance, which was taboo. The interesting thing is that after the rats had learned to escape more than 10 times quicker at Harvard... When rats were tested in Edinburgh, Scotland, and in Melbourne, Australia, they started more or less where the Harvard rats left off. Meaning, as they were training rats to escape these water mazes in one location, they started off being horrible at it. They got better at it. When they stopped that experiment at the one location, and it looks like, where is that, Edinburgh or Harvard... They started up the same experimentation in Edinburgh, Scotland, and Melbourne, Australia. When they did that, the rats there that were not related genetically in any way to the rats that they used in Harvard started completing the maze where the other rats left off. Meaning they were as efficient at solving the maze from the beginning, from the first time they were dropped in it, as the rats were at the end of training in the water maze at Harvard. And these were not related, meaning the mechanism that we usually associate with that kind of inheritance, that kind of information being passed along, would be genetics. Well, there is no genetic line there. So how is the information being passed? Morphic resonance. That's where this idea comes in. (laughs) You see what I'm saying? There's some other infrastructure there that we don't see. The materialist way of looking at things can't readily see. But it exists nonetheless. Because there's evidence of it existing. So yeah, so uh, the interesting thing is that after he, the rats had learned to escape more than 10 times quicker at Harvard, and the rats were tested in Edinburgh, Scotland, and in Melbourne, Australia, they started more or less where the Harvard rats left off. In Melbourne, uh, Melbourne, those rat, the rats continued to improve after repeated testing, and this effect was not confined to the descendants of trained rats, suggesting a morphic resonance rather than epigenetic effect. So I discussed this in The New Science of Life, which is the book that he presented this idea in. Right. I'm going to keep on going on. Horgan. Is animal telepathy a necessary consequence of morphic resonance? Sheldrake. Animal telepathy is a consequence of the way that animal groups are organized by what I call morphic fields. 
Morphic resonance is primarily to do with an influence from the past, whereas tele telepathy occurs in the present and depends on the bonds between members of the group. For example, when a dong is strongly bonded to its owner, this bond persists, persists even when the owner is far away and is, I think, the basis of telepathic communication. I see telepathy as a normal, not paranormal, means of communication between members of animal groups. For example, many dogs know when their owners are coming home and start waiting for them by a door or a window. My experiments on the subject are described in my book, Dogs That Know When Their Owners Are Coming Home. Dogs still know even when people set off at times randomly chosen by the experimenter and travel in unfamiliar vehicles. One of these experiments can be seen here. So I'll post this. I'll pull it up. Um, and what this... Uh, this is a video of that experiment. It says, JTA dog who knew when his owner was coming home. Now, this is a really interesting one because I'm sure a lot of you, this is a good example of a way that you can test this theory or this idea in your own life. I don't know. You probably already have um, if any of, you, any of you have dogs. But one of the things that I've noticed, and I just recently noticed this, is very interesting. Um, for Christmas, my parents bought me a Furbo. For those of you who don't know what a Furbo is, a Furbo is like a, it's like a nanny cam for your dog and it has a little treat dispenser. You know what I mean? Um, and it's really cool. It's a cool little, cool little thing. But anyway, um, I've, you know, put it in my room and I started to watch, uh, and it'll do little notifications when your dog's getting active. And what I noticed after I started to, you know, get the notifications after about a week or so, um, is every time when I come home and this sense has always been the same every time when I come home. Not even when I'm in the apartment complex, but when I'm down the road, turning onto my main road to go to the apartment complex, I'll get a notification that my dog is getting active every single time. And when I come home, obviously the dog is right there at the door, right? Waiting for you. Now, I think this is an example of what he's talking about, that there's some kind of communication. We always assume, and I always assumed, the reason your dog knows you're coming home is because it hears the garage door open or it hears your car pull up or something like that. But apparently that is not the case that dogs know when you're coming home, regardless of external stimulus. So there doesn't have to be a different car sound or a car, a horn honking or a garage door opening. They are connected to you in some other way. There's information being passed in some other way that they know you're home. And it's also like, you can see this in dogs. There's this, this uh, dogs are a really good example of this because there's this unspoken, there's this method of communication that we use with dogs that is not spoken a lot of the time. You can, when you're upset, your dog knows without you saying anything. It's weird. And I, I think it just might be one of the best examples to test this morphic resonance in your life is, is with animals. <coughs> Specifically dogs, because they have the emotional cues, the facial cues and stuff that allow you to receive information back. Whereas like a ostrich, you know, can't, it's not going to, you know, you, you can say something or maybe be mad at it, but it's going to stare at you with lifeless eyes. And expression, you know, there's no point purpose to expression in the ostrich world. But the dog has evolved very specifically to mimic human facial expressions in order to communicate emotion. And this has been heavily tested as well. And so you're able to you're able to understand in, in a sense what dogs are saying just by looking at the way their face looks. Now that isn't morphic resonance in action, but what you can tell, you can recognize those looks, the emotional response in the dog before you do anything. And watch for that because it happens. You'll see their expression change before you exhibit any physical expression change. 
before you yell, before you get mad, before you get sad, whatever it is, they will start to mimic it. It's also one of the things that you'll notice when uh, a storm's coming. Many people that have dogs know this as well. When a thunderstorm is coming or something like that, two or three hours before, or a big bad storm, two or three hours before, the dog will start acting crazy. It's going to start acting weird. It's going to go hide in a corner. It's going to start, you know, like shaking. You know, small dogs do this quite a bit too. You know, shake and a lot like that. How, how do they know that? How are they, how do they, know? because every single time when that's happening, two and a half hours later, this ungodly storm strikes, right? Now, how are they recognizing the storm? It could be them sensing changes in barometric pressure or any other you know, combination of those examples. But if you take the other assumptions that we've been, you know, we take the other ideas we've been playing with and plug it in, it makes sense. Maybe it's morphic resonance that's communicating that information to them. Maybe there's some kind of, um, Yeah. It, because the, the reason I like love this idea as well is it, it ties together to what what I think is maybe going on at a deep spiritual level. I, like I've I've said in, in some detail before, I believe is that we are all at a very deep level the same thing. That what you are and what I am and what a bird is and what a tree is is no different. We're not different things. It's a matter of perspective. It's a perspective problem that because we have an individual viewpoint into the world, it makes us feel that we're separate from it. But in reality, if we are able to switch that perspective, we're able to pull back. Let's say we're able to stand on the moon and look at the earth. What we'll view the earth as when that happens is not as a bunch of separate millions of separate billions of separate things running around, billions of separate organisms running around, but you'll view it as one thing. That is one thing. Every ant, every bird, every person, every tree, every leaf, every blade of grass on that thing is all the same thing. And technically you'd be right. It's not technically, but figuratively, you'd be right. <laughs> you know what I mean? Now, I think that idea fits very nicely with the idea of morphic resonance because it actually kind of, without being able to prove it or test it through the scientific method, ha has the ability to describe in some ways how that method of communication is happening. How do you communicate with something that's apparently separate? Well, you don't. It's not separate. Bird is not is not it's not disentangled from you. That there's these different resonance fields. Like there's a resonance field, like an earth resonance field. There's a human being resonance field, and there's a there's a there's a there's a bird resonance field and a I don't know, a fish resonance field, but there's also like a life resonance field. You know what I mean? Like like life, period. And I think with the life resonance field, and you tap into that, that that's God. It's connecting to all of those resonances all at once. You know what I mean? One of the things that you'll read, if you ever read um, like any Brahmin or, or, you know, enlightened ones, you know what I mean? If you read a, the Buddha or something like that, one, one way they'll describe enlightenment or nirvana is, is as a a coming together of everything, a oneness, right? You're one with the world, as you know, hear that idea. This is what I'm describing. 
You're one thing. The resonance theory, I think, is a way of of illustrating that in the world, of finding examples of it in the world, not passing over them. Not presenting ideas that are unfounded as if they are. Not lying. Support your ego. Support your idea of yourself as an expert. Don't trust experts. They're nothing but egos. Now, let's move on. Horgan. Do you think morphic resonance theory will ever yield practical applications? Sheldrake. Morphic resonance involves the transfer of information across space and time. It might be possible to develop information transfer systems with a global memory, which would work without all the normal paraphernalia of satellites, wires, booster stations, etc. I've already designed experiments in which a pin code could be transmitted from London to New York without any conventional means of communication. Hmm. It's interesting, right? And Horgan. Does your scientific outlook make you doubt whether artificial intelligence researchers can replicate human minds on computers? Sheldrake. Morphic fields take place in self-organizing systems. Machines are not self-organizing. They are made in factories. And I would not expect them to have morphic fields. Therefore, I expect artificial intelligence on digital computers will remain rather limited in scope. And those who have high hopes for it will be disappointed. However, if analog computers with genuine quantum randomness were constructed... Perhaps they could be organized by morphic fields and show much more intelligent behavior. It's possible that quantum computing will lead in this direction. And I, I think he's onto something there. 100%. Life is not lifeless. No matter how hard you try to make it. <laughs> that. You can't take the life out of life. That's what I'm getting from it. I'm going to read this one last one. I don't want to continue to read the whole article because, you know, like I said, it's not my work, but I'm going to read one last little section here because I like this question. Horgan, do you ever have doubts about morphic resonance and think maybe the materialists are right? Sheldrake, I would like there to be much more research on morphic resonance and I would like to see a lot more evidence for it. If there were, it would not necessarily refute materialism, but could expand the materialist worldview, which has become excessively dogmatic as I show in my recent book, Science Set Free, which is... Uh, I believe the book, yeah, this is the one that I'm um, re- reading on audiobook right now. And it's interesting because in this book, he, he outlines, I think it's either 10 or 11 dogmas of modern science. Um, you know, modern science usually criticizes religion itself because of the dogmatic way that it inf- influences people. Well, science is doing the exact same thing and maybe to a more insidious <laughs> level because it's not admitting that that's what it's doing as well. Right, so uh, I think something is like morphic resonance is necessary to make sense of inheritance, memory, and evolutionary nature of nature of nature. That's another part right there. Evolution, I think, has been the life has been sucked out of evolution. It's been made to think that it's simply natural selection. I think that that's wrong. I think the missing piece, like like uh, Rupert is talking about, is this memory, historical memory, or something like that. Um, the and he even talks about in that TED talk about um, in the real the theory of evolution wasn't always this lifeless thing that 
that um, what was the idea? I'll have to look it up and, and I'll, I'll bring it back another time. But um, that Darwin talked about something similar to like a morphic field in the way that information was passed between generations, but that it was kind of deleted. That like natural selection is what we chose is like the method of passing all information, not just some, not just genetic. <laughs> you know what I mean? And so uh, it's again, it's this, it's become this dogma. Nitro. Evolution itself. You heard me in the last episode describing it as this lifeless thing. That's the assumption. Well, it wasn't always such, and it's, it's become a dogma. Lee Smolin, the theoretical physicist, recently put forward a similar idea, which he calls the principle of precedence, and perhaps his hypothesis might mesh in better with established science, since it is formulated in the context of quantum physics. The main question is whether or not the effects predicted by the hypothesis of morphic resonance are, or the principle of precedence, actually happen. And that's the hard thing. Is you, Using the modern scientific method, there isn't any readily obvious available ways of, of, of testing this in the physical sense. And so that we know yet. But there may be, and that's one of the things. We have to keep looking. We have to keep researching. We have to keep you know, playing with these ideas and not, not forming dogma. You know, it, it, Anyway. I uh, <laughs> I hope all of this served to kind of inform you a little bit more on what morphic resonance is. You know, I didn't mean to kind of uh, confuse you at all if I did, because I know there's a lot of information I passed along there, and I know this is not my idea, right? So I don't have, um, you know, I'm trying to conceptualize it the best way I can, but these are hard ideas. You know, these are not concrete things that you can hold and look at. And so trying to figure out what they're talking about is a hard process, and I think it takes time like this, you know, sitting down and spending 45 minutes to an hour and just playing with the idea to see what it actually is and uh who knows maybe you do i know i have since i've been playing with this idea but maybe you will as well find little mini examples throughout your day of this happening i think they exist out there you just have to your eyes have to be open it's a good time to test it you know when the world is quieter and everything's kind of you know you have more time to go out and walk and, and watch you know when you're in the modern world when that mechanism is moving you know you don't have time to stop and enjoy the you know smell the roses in a sense and so you don't notice these, and that's the way that you recognize these little quirky, the quirkiness of life, these little intricacies that you'll, you'll walk right by. Right off is unimportant. But these, these, these basic, basic, these fundamentally impractical ideas are the ones that we need to focus on because they're the ones that we've been deleting from science itself. And just because something's impractical doesn't necessarily mean it's not true. <laughs> you know what I mean? Practicality is nice and all, but doesn't necessarily, it's not the method of defining what is true or not. So with that, I think that's what I got for you guys today. I hope you enjoyed this episode of the Unfounded Podcast. And I hope that, uh, you know, come back, you know, as, as soon as I get another one, we'll try to dive a little bit more on this. I'm going to continue to listen to the audiobooks, continue to maybe play with some more um, fringe ideas that, you know, modern science or the materialist view worldview kind of uh, pushes back against because i think those are the areas that we might have a little overlap like i said in the spiritual realm and, and we might we might get a little more insight uh and even if we don't i find this incredibly entertaining just to kind of play with the ideas and i hope you do as well uh if you are enjoying the podcast please like share and subscribe uh, on my facebook i i'm fairly active on my facebook and my instagram my twitter not as much but i do have it if you want to go on the twitter page uh, and thank you again for your support. Um, I really appreciate it, and I will be back at it soon. Have a good rest of your day and stay safe. Bye-bye.